There's been an enormous growth in navigation technology over the past few decades. Today, sailors no longer need charts or sextons or even a telescope to plot a course or navigate through dangerous seas. But the old tried-and-true methods of navigation can still tell us a lot about the world around us, a world that is still 71% made up of water. So, for today's Please Explain, Tristan Gooley, a writer, navigator, and explorer, joins us to discuss water and what we can learn from it about navigating seas and also the best way to clean up a spill in the kitchen. His most recent book is How to Read Water, Clues and Patterns from Puddles to the Sea. It's published by The Experiment. I'm very pleased it has brought Tristan Gooley to our show. Welcome. Thank you. And we invite you, our listeners, to join in on the conversation. Do you have a question about navigation or waterways? Give us a call, 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wmyc.org-lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. What's the benefit uh, to someone who's not a lighthouse keeper or a sailboat racer or a navigator to learn the kinds of skills that you describe in this book? It adds a layer to absolutely every day it's pretty hard to get through a whole day without seeing some water even if it's a, a fountain in the in the center of a city uh, and um, my writing and my work is all about giving people the tools showing them the signs to look for so in the case of the one I just mentioned if you hear water it will be white water so that's just the start of the relationship that water doesn't make any sound unless it mixes with air so as soon as we hear it we know there's going to be some white water nearby and what do you mean by white water clear water no, as in when, when water mixes with air, so it could be a roaring great waterfall um, or it can be um, as, as, as simple as a, a small fountain in the centre of a city or when you turn on a tap. And you say that you can actually tell the season by smelling uh, 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 some water? What is it? Uh, how big does the, uh, the, the water have to be? Well, the, a pond, a lake? Yeah, both a pond and a lake, you, you'll pick up the seasonal differences, not just in the life in them, which I think people are familiar with, but because of the change in temperatures um, all around a pond and a lake, the life is changing pretty much day by day. And I, I explain in the book how you can find water by seeing how life changes as you approach it. You uh, write a bit about history in this book. Can you talk a bit about Captain Abhara? Yes, yeah. That was a, a lovely moment for me because I uh, one of the most rewarding things about the past um, 15 years studying water is, is seeing how the different cultures all around the world have their own ways of, of looking for these signs. And Captain Abhara was, was a nice example because it was, a, it was a quite a vivid story uh, where he, he was able to save a crew from a terrible storm and the crew he saved many, many hundreds of years ago, the crew he saved had no idea how he did it. And he just said, look, the, the signs are there. You've just got to look. And that's very much what, what my work's about. Well, he used a rowboat. Yeah, yeah, he was he was found. I mean, it may be slightly apocryphal, but but for the purposes of of um, introducing the idea of the signs being out there, it, it works for me. In the sense, he was found just bobbing around in the in the middle of the ocean, uh, and they said to him, "Why don't you, you know, why don't we let you uh, come on board our boat? It's much bigger." And uh, and he said, "No, do you know what? I'm okay, thanks." <laughs> and they said, "No, no, come on." And he said, "If you give me one thousand dinars, then I'll, I'll come on your boat." And uh, they had so much respect for his knowledge that they did it, and it, and he saved them in the end. What signs? did he rely on he was uh looking at uh the way uh the waves were changing and uh clues in the sky as well so i i think we all know what a giant storm cloud looks like but there are so many more subtle signs and if the if the gap between waves decreases uh it's a good sign that there's a, a storm approaching 
Captain Cook was amazed by the navigating skills the Pacific Islanders had. Uh, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Even though Europeans obviously sailed, uh, they had a very different relationship with the seas. Yes, that, that's right. And uh, Cook was a hero of mine when I was a, a youngster, and, and he had his own heroes in, in these Pacific Island navigators. And that was a real breakthrough for me in terms of my, my journey with reading water, was when I, I realised that the patterns the Pacific Islanders can use to, to sense water, they could quite literally tell when, uh, sorry, sense land, they can quite literally tell when they're approaching an island with their eyes closed, lying on the deck of a canoe. They sense the motion in the ocean changing, the rhythm changing, and they know land is there. And, and for me, the breakthrough is we can see those patterns, even in a small pond, um, those patterns are there. So did they teach Captain Cook how to get through, the, for example, the Tuamoto Archipelago? Yes, yeah, Cook um, took, uh, I, I uh, forget the exact name at the moment, but uh, he, he had a, an expert um, um, local with him at certain times, and that's been a good tradition over the centuries, is, is you know, there's, there's nothing that can entirely substitute local knowledge, so if there's somebody there who's prepared to help you, it's a good idea. Is it kind of surprising that we know much about the way Pacific Islanders read patterns in water a lot more than the rest of their culture? Yes, there was a, a, a happy coincidence that the, the Pacific Islanders had this extraordinary body of knowledge, this, this law, this LORE law, and um, some academics, a lot of them from the US, headed there in the 60s and 70s and onwards. And the Pacific Islanders had slightly lost sight of how rare and special their knowledge was. So, so Westerners coming along and saying, please, please, please tell us about this amazing stuff was kind of it, it kind of opened their eyes to the, the, the amazing um, asset they had in their, in their wisdom. How did the Pacific navigators aim for their destinations? Because Europeans tried generally to, to hug the coastline. Yeah, that's right. Um, the I think people will be familiar with the idea that we can use the sun and the stars um, to, to find our way, and, I, and I, I touch on that in, in the book. But the thing the Pacific Islanders did that was uh, truly extraordinary was uh, they were able to, to effectively make the, the land speak to them through the water. They were, they were detecting these patterns. They also would notice cloud shapes, which would tell them if there was an island um, well over the horizon. So it's very, very rare that they would see land first. They would nearly always pick up one of these signs. My guest on today's Please Explain is Tristan Gooley, who's written a book called How to Read Water, Clues and Patterns from Puddles to the Sea, published by The Experiment. This is WMIC, WMIC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Your book isn't just about navigating oceans. You discuss the basic properties of water. What can we learn about water from spilling and cleaning up a glass of water in the kitchen counter? Um, this this was, uh, as I was learning about water on a small scale, this, this actually happened to be, I knocked some water over and um, uh, I think we've all had that experience where it sort of full, it forms mini upside down puddles, by which I mean that if you get your eye level with a, a worktop surface in the kitchen or something like that, you'll just see these, these bits of water bulging. And that's the surface tension. Water is strongly attracted to water. It sort of bunches up. Uh, and that's the right. That's why some insects can walk across the top of it. We can't. We're too heavy, obviously. But but um, that starts to explain things like when you look at a stream, you'll notice that the banks either side of the stream, the water's rising up in the ground, um, and that's a, a capillary action um, because because water has this this stickiness. Uh, it sticks to itself, and then it sticks to other things, and it starts rising up things. And why does it stick to itself? It's just to, to hydrogen. Uh atoms and one oxygen atom yeah the the um uh, i'm not a physicist uh, or a chemist but i believe it's the the attraction of the hydrogen to the oxygen atom in in, in other molecules that that's uh, keeping them sticky 
You say it's easier to learn about water with your feet on the ground rather than uh, being out on the water. Yeah, and that's been really key. I, I don't think I would have written this book just for people who are, are heading out across oceans. This is, this is the, the great joy for me is this knowledge is, is drawn from all around the world, but actually it's about what we see day to day. And um, I see probably, you know, a dozen, a dozen sort of water signs, um, you know, every day. Uh, and, and that's what's fun. I, I, I try and get out there on, into boats and stuff. But, uh, but the, the really exciting thing for me is, is what we see on a daily basis. Can we learn about navigating the ocean by studying a pond or even puddles? Yeah, um, puddles you can use as a compass. You get more puddles on the south side of tracks. If, if a track runs, let's say, east or west, the, the sun, which is due south in the middle of the day, will struggle to, to uh, heat the, the southern side of a path. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but if you go out there and have a look for it, you will see it. More puddles on the south side. So, and in a pond, if there's a rock or anything else, next time there's a, you, you see the wind blowing, some, some ripples will be set up. They'll bounce into the rock, and they set up these patterns which are... They're basically identical to the patterns the Pacific Islanders use. So we, we, can, we can have fun doing what they did after a thousand-mile journey just by staring into a pond in, a, in our backyard. Don't stones in a pond create the same kinds of patterns in water that islands do in the sea? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And you, you'd imagine that some um, waves will reflect back. So there's, there's nothing, you know, um, shocking about that. But really beautiful patterns are created when the, when the ripples start to bend, uh, refract round the rock. Uh, and that sets up all sorts of uh, all sorts of nice patterns. We're inviting calls from our listeners. Our number here is two one two four three three nine six nine two. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org/lopate or on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And Michael from Huntington, you're on the air. Yes, hello. Um, I'm wondering if there's a is an actual term for different patterns in water that I see, like. <laughs> For instance, if I'm driving over a bridge, like most often I see it on uh, going off the Great South Bay over to, like, Robert Moses, you'll see different patterns in the water. It almost looks like like there's uh, a body of water adjacent to another body of water, almost like, like a little pond adjacent to a lake. You can actually see the um, difference in the ripples from the wind or whatever. I'm wondering if there's a, a – I don't know if you know what I'm talking about – if, if there's an actual term for that where it actually looks like like there's almost like a lake inside of the, the whole bay. You write about ripple maps in this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, hi, Michael. Um, I, I think you may be um, talking about a couple of effects there. If, the, if there's any, if, if, um, any boats are going across water, they'll leave a very, very thin film of oil, which leaves some, some parts, they're known as slick lines, uh, some parts calm, some parts uh, will, will remain rough. And then there's a, there's a very, very common pattern, which is a diffraction. Whenever water passes, which is very common by bridges, when water passes between pillars uh, through any narrow gap, it fans out. And that, that leaves uh, waves in, in some places, but leaves other places sheltered. So I don't know, because I'm, I'm not looking at exactly what you're describing. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to describe. But I, I can only picture it as if, as if there was a um, two separate bodies of water adjacent to each other they're, they're still there's, there's no boats around the, the water is you know there's a slight breeze maybe uh, 10 knots or so and uh you'll see it, it, it looks like actual like a pond within a lake type of thing where one is a little bit more smooth and around it is a little bit more rippled well i'm uh, i'm reminded in uh, 
by something that I read about in the Amazon where these two rivers converge. One is has black water and one doesn't. And they actually, they uh, travel side by side for quite a, a way until they finally, the color starts blending in. Yes, yeah, water... Uh, Does it, it matter whether it's salt water or fresh water? Uh, if water has a different density for any reason, and saltiness is, is one of those good ones, but temperature's another one. I mean, to give you an example, if, if water, fresh water comes down uh, in a river and hits the sea, um, the, the salty water's going to be denser. So that water sometimes sits on the top for long periods. And there was a, an Olympic sailing race where the sailors were completely confused because they knew what the main body of water was doing, but the water they were sat on was doing something completely different. Uh, what they didn't realize is they were sitting on a, on a pool of river water on top of seawater. So perhaps Michael is talking about where a bay meets the ocean. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very possible. It does sound like um, uh, the, it could be a difference in, in density. There might also be, um, in the book, I, I explain how wind is doing a, a lot of, you know, quite, quite interesting things that we might not guess. When it goes past obstacles like a bridge, it sets up eddies, and those eddies can create uh, some, some quite beautiful patterns. But, uh, but without seeing it, I can't be certain which one it is. Thanks for calling us, Michael. And Mark from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good afternoon. Uh, I don't know if you can hear me or not. We uh, hear you the, perfectly fine. Outside, tip of the cap, sir. I mean, I, I, I've grown up reading uh, any all the Thor Heyerdahl books, Klontiki, Aku Aku. I mean, the the only way uh, to navigate, I mean, I, I'm a hunter. I do land-based navigation for the most part, but... You've seen this 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 uh, hunting Pokemon thing over the last year or two. You know, people getting lost in the desert because the satellite sent them the wrong way, <laughs> et cetera. I mean, the only the only the only school is the old school. And I would uh, tip of the cap to you again. Uh, to, I would encourage people to go out and really learn about uh, the Pacific the Pacific peoples, their navigation with the star charts made from uh, palm fronds and branches, et cetera. The Vikings' navigational systems. I mean. The, you know, through massive trial and error, really pushed the, the forefront of exploration into the into the world, and uh, um, really just um, amazing things. And and just learn some basic stuff because it's been done for us, and and the world is open. And and so, Mark uh, points out that GPS isn't always reliable. So is that a problem with people who are who are on the oceans these days? When uh, can they be sent to the wrong place because of errant GPS? I've never heard of that actually happening in a, in a way that it caused any harm. And actually, I, I take a slightly different perspective, which is if we think we have to learn this stuff for safety, uh, we're, we're unlikely to do it. So my whole philosophy is let, let's learn it because it's satisfying, it's rewarding, and it's fun. If we then, you know, at some point need to use it, then, then we've got it as well. Let's take one more call uh, before we go to a break. Brian from Park Slope, you're on the air. Hi, Lenny. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I had um, kayaked around Manhattan last year, um, fortunately with a bunch of people who had done it before, so they knew what they were doing. Um, I've always heard that the Hudson River is a tidal river uh, because the uh, Atlantic, of course, comes right into the harbor of New York. But I, I couldn't tell from where I was whether the actual current in the Hudson River is actually reversed 180 degrees by the incoming tide. Is it just that salt water becomes mixed with the river as it comes down or does it actually reverse the flow of the hudson river um i don't know the hudson personally well enough to know all its foibles but generally the there are there, there's a kind of pattern that, that applies all over the world where fresh water is meeting salt water there's a there's a bit bit of a sort of arm wrestle that goes on when the when the sea is flooding it wins and it pushes 
pushes well in. Uh, but gravity is always trying to bring the, the fresh water down. So when you get the, the turn of the tide uh, at the high tide point, um, there's this, this kind of almost like a backlog of fresh water, which will then, then start, to, start to surge out. Thank you for calling us. We've got to go to a break now. My guest on today's Please Explain is Tristan Gooley, G-O-O-L-E-Y. His book, How to Read Water Clues and Patterns from Puddles to the Sea. And we will continue and take more calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. Or you can write to us on our show page at WMYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And we are back with Tristan Gooley, his book, How to Read Water, Clues and Patterns from Puddles to the Sea, uh, subtitled Learn to Gauge Depth, Navigate, Forecast Weather, and Make Other Predictions with Water. Uh, in, uh, if a person is trying to map or find or predict where water is, do they need to memorize certain plants? Uh, do plants tell us about uh, where we might find water? They do, but something I feel really strongly about is people mustn't feel they have to learn the names of anything. I was put off nature as a kid um, when, when I sort of felt, I've got to learn so much stuff at school, and now you're expecting me to learn a whole load of other stuff, some of it with Latin in. So what I encourage people to do is, if you're on a, a walk somewhere you don't know uh, very well, and you suddenly come across some water, just back up a bit and do the last five minutes of the walk again, and just look at how the plants and animals change. And without learning any names, our brains have evolved to actually take this in. So if you do it a few times, the next thing that happens, which is great fun, is you just suddenly think, "Oh, I can sense some water," and, and that's that's long before you've seen it. And then you see you see all the familiar plants again, and suddenly the water's there. And birds as well. Yeah, birds, every, I mean, the coast is a good example. At the coast, um, all, all wildlife is tuned to the tidal rhythms because their food is appearing and then disappearing in, in quite a dramatic way. So, again, you can study. You don't need to know the names of anything. You study which birds you see when there's a high tide, which ones are a low tide, and then you'll be able to work out what the tide's doing when you can't even see the sea. Given that trees have roots and can't move, aren't trees of any kind a sure sign that there's some kind of water in the area? Yes, um, but uh, all all plants uh, have you know evolved coping mechanisms. So you will find the odd tree even in deserts. But we get to know the trees that really need water. So something like a beech tree can cope in quite dry soil. But willows, as, as many of your listeners will know, mm. willows need a lot of water. So if you see a line of willows in the distance, probably a stream or a river. When is the uh, appearance of flies important? Again, the, the insects are so sensitive to their environment. So if we see the insect life change at all, there's a very high chance it's telling us something about the water. Um, you get a, a sudden cloud of uh, midges or insects and you haven't had any for a while. Have a look around you. There'll, there'll be some water there. I've always wondered about dowsers. Does that really work? Well, the thing with, with dowsers is I'm, I'm pretty open-minded. I don't put anything in my books unless I can back it up and I understand the science. But I'm still open-minded to things that I don't fully understand. And I don't think anybody on Earth fully understands dowsing. But one thing that's definitely worth knowing is that pretty much everywhere on land, if you go deep enough, there'll be water. So if you're going to you know, give a dowser full marks, they've got to tell you how deep the water is, not just where you'll find it. What's Manning's formula? How uh, is it used to categorize rivers? Um, because we've got a number of calls about rivers. Uh, is that in my book, Manning's Formula? 
Well, I, there's a difference between an upland river and a lowland river. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Um, you can you can classify. It is in your book. It is, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it sounds. I would I'm not just, have known that there was such a thing as Manning's formula. Otherwise, I, it's clearly one that I don't use daily. But uh, uh, rivers have uh, have lots of different stages. But to keep it to keep it simple, I personally think of upland or or a lowland river. A lowland river, they're those big, wide, sweeping ones we're familiar with. They don't make any sounds. Upland rivers, there's a bit of white water. You can hear them, uh, and they're chucking rocks around a bit. And what does the word flashiness mean in this regard? Yeah, flashiness is is quite important. Um, If you live in an area that floods, uh, if you think about heavy rain, perhaps during a storm, uh, that rain's got to go somewhere. If the rocks are porous and the rain can sink through it, then effectively the land is acting like a bit of a sponge. And what that means is the rivers will respond very slowly to to rain. So something like limestone absorbs lots of water. There can be a massive downpour, and and weirdly the river won't flood. However, if you're in somewhere with with very hard rocks that, that don't absorb water, like granite, you can have a you know a very modest downpour, and suddenly the the river is raging, and that's a flashy river. Let's take another call. Brant from Bay Ridge, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I used to be a whitewater rafting guide and a kayak instructor, and the number one question I would get, no matter where I was, uh, is how deep how deep is the water here? And I, I don't know. I, I would, uh, uh, I can read the water from the surface, but uh, in some of those. I can garner some clues as to depth from that, but uh, most of the time I would uh, tell people they were welcome to jump in and let me know. Uh, <laughs> so do you have any uh, any clues as to how to uh, tell depth from the surface? Or Mark Twain. Isn't that where Mark Twain got his name when they were trying to check out the depth of water? Oh, I don't know that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in 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 still water, we can we can use plants and things like that. But you're you're talking about water that's that's very much on the on the move, and it it is a lot harder. Uh, there's there's no silver bullet, but generally, if there are probably more subtle patterns in the surface than the most of us give attention to, because if water flows over a rock, even a rock that's that's quite deep, it, it sets up an eddy, and you'll be familiar with those. You get horizontal eddies, and as you're a kayaker, you will have been uh, caught in some fun ones, you know, eddy fences breaking across those sorts of things. But actually, on a tiny tiny scale every time a stream goes over a you know very small pebble it's setting up eddies and those appear on the surface so if you get your head down low and you're looking across the water uh, with with bright light on on the opposite side you know ideally a patch of sky um the uh the the if it's if the water's touching anything on the bottom it's creating um patterns on the surface which we can read if you want to fish in a river are there signs as to where you might do best yeah, I mean, I I got to be honest. For for many years, I I wasn't you know into fishing, and to this day, I wouldn't I wouldn't describe myself as as a keen uh, fisherman. But the, a sport I do, and I really encourage everybody to do. And there's a chapter on it in the book, which is rise watching, which is you you think like a fish. So you look at the water. Fish won't be in the fastest bit. Uh, they won't be in the very s- slowest bit because they're too vulnerable. They'll be near the moving water because that's where the food's coming from. Then you think about what the insects, some of their food is doing. It's falling on the water, but it's collecting in certain places. So you can look for a line of bubbles. Um, if a cloud goes in front of the sun, a whole load of insects suddenly lose the ability to fly. They fall onto the water. So we start bringing all these pieces together. And the sport, really fun sport of rise watching is you look at the water, you pull all the pieces together, and you think, if I was a fish, I'd go for an insect there. And if you get it right, which it's a lot easier to do than it sounds, you see these, these ripples emanating from where the fish has grabbed the insect at the surface. Let's take another call. Dan from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um... 
when I listen to your guest, I'm reminded if any of the things that he's talking about could have been used in the um, in the Ernest Shackleton, uh, some of the crew they made a um, an unbelievably um, accurate sailing to a, to an Argentine island when they were stranded in the um, in Antarctica. Now their trip was over hundreds of miles, and I don't know if they could have used any of the knowledge that your guest is talking about. They, they, they doubtless would have done for survival as much as navigation because if you if you fight the sea too much in a small boat you're, you're going to come off second best. They were using a sextant on that on that particular voyage. It was an incredible bit of conventional navigation, but yes, they were so keen to find land that they would have been um, doing what the Pacific Islanders, the Vikings, and many others uh, have done for centuries, which is looking out for bird life as well uh, and 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 studying the sky both for weather and clues to to where land is. So they w- they would have used pretty much everything, I think. Thank you so much for your call. On another front, uh, you suggest that most of the world's sewer and drainage systems are radically out of date. What have we been doing wrong? Well, they're just such massive infrastructure projects. It's as simple as that. You know, the bigger the project, the the harder it is to get some, you know, the group of people who need to to say yes, and you have to rip up a whole lot of stuff to to change that system. So it's as simple as that. It's 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 easier to say let's do it later. So, but the water is still going down there and draining off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you uh, if you see a massive puddle in a in a city, it's it's a sign of a blockage somewhere. But most of the time, it's working pretty well. Why is the color of water so varied? Is it what's in the water that determines the color? I I absolutely loved uh, writing this chapter of the book because uh, it was an area that, although I'd spent you know an awful lot of time in and around the water. I, I still felt ignorant about it. And basically, the colour of water is determined by what's in the water, the light, what's under the water. Uh, and we, we bring all of those things together. So a very simple experiment. Oh, but wait, I always thought it was just the way the sky was reflected in the, the, the surface of the water. Well, that's, that's part of it. But if you imagine standing at a beach, if you look directly down at your feet, the water looks transparent. But if you look into the distance, you will pick up the reflections of the sky. And what happens is if you stretch out your arm and make a fist, that's roughly 10 degrees. And if you drop it from the horizontal and you do two fists below the horizontal, that's roughly where we, we move from seeing the sky in the distance to being able to see through the water. And if you, if you start doing that, you'll just notice that the colours change. Um, the more vertically you're looking down, the more water you're seeing, the more horizontal the more sky you're seeing. Can you create a thermocline experiment in your kitchen? Yeah, um, I've, I've messed around with this a few times. Sometimes it works, not every time, I've got to be honest. But um, uh, if you... Um, if you have water that's either a different temperature or a different density, or to give yourself the best chance, both. Um, so if you if you experiment with, uh, you want two different colours, so make some tea uh, and um, make it very, very hot. And then if you pour it over the back of the spoon onto some cold water in a, on a basin, you you know, if, you, if you're lucky, you'll see the two completely separate still. It's almost like there's a, there's a line between them. Um, and you can add you can add salt to the to the clear water and you can do various things. And that's that's effectively what's going on in nature. If, if you ever had that experience where you're swimming in the sea and you, you just swim down a you know a couple of couple of yards and just suddenly the temperature changes very suddenly. What do you mean when you say a coastline is fractal? What I what I mean is that um if you look at a a, um, a map of let's say the whole um east or west coast of, of the US there's only a certain amount of detail there. But we all, if you then think of your favourite beach, if you if you head there, if you follow every twist and turn of that beach, you could end up walking, you know, many, many miles. But on the on the on the map of the whole coast, it may only show one mile. 
it's, it's beaches have so much more detail than than they appear to on a map. Coastal areas are prone to fog. Are there different kinds of fog? Yeah, there, there are there are several different types of fog at the coast. Um, it's, it's well anywhere to be honest, inland or at the coast. The two worth knowing: radiation fog, one of those clear nights with not a lot of wind. All the heat radiates out of the ground, hence its name. We wake up in the morning and there's loads of fog. And so, if there's no wind at all early in the morning and it's cold and there's foggy, it's actually quite a good sign. It probably means later in the day you're going to have a sunny day. Whereas advection fog is when the wind brings it in from somewhere else. I always thought that inland fog was a sign of pollution. And then recently, I was in Mexico in. Uh, a mountain area, which was perfectly clean air, and yet uh, there was pea soup fog. Yeah, no, fog, fog and pollution are not directly related. If if you've got a lot of pollution and there's fog, you you, you get smog. But but those are those are normally two two separate things. You can also get a thing called a temperature inversion, where um you know normally we know the air gets colder as we go up, but sometimes a bit of warm air sits on top of cold air and it'll trap the pollution close to the ground, and that's not very nice. But You've write about what something that happened to you in Indonesia in 1998. What happened? Yeah, I was going through that. Uh, I think um, everyone, even us Brits, go through a phase of thinking we can be surfers. And um, I, uh, <laughs> I was going through my phase of trying to trying to teach myself to surf and mainly failing. Uh, but uh, but I, I just just come in from uh, a bit of trying to surf, and uh, there was um, a shout out at sea, and, and I turned around, and somebody was clearly in trouble. And I was, I was reasonably fit at the time, and I thought, well, nobody else seems to be doing it, something. Uh, I know I'm meant to try and get some help. I can't see any help. I can't see any sort of, uh, you know, life-saving devices. So I'm going to go out there and try and help this person. And uh, they they ended up disappearing away from me faster than I could swim. And then I heard my, my then-girlfriend, now-wife's voice going, get back, get back, get back. Uh, and both of us, um, the person I was trying to reach and myself, were caught in a in a rip current at that point. That's different than a riptide? Yeah, people call it a riptide, and that's a common expression, but it's not really a tidal phenomena. It's It's a current form when... There's a lot of water on the beach, and it ends up with gravity trying to punch its way back to the sea through a narrow gap, almost like a jet. Could you have spotted it before you went out? There are signs I now know, because I was a, a lot younger and more ignorant then. Um, they're, not, they're, not, they're not the easiest things to spot, but one of the things is definitely worth knowing is that wherever there's a, a, a rip current, the sea will appear different. So let me give you an example. You go down to a beach and there's some nice size, big breaking waves and you think, oh, I feel like going for a swim, but those waves look a bit big. And then you see a spot where the waves don't seem to be breaking at all. Uh, that's quite often, it's a bit of a magnet. People think, well, I'll go to that spot. But if the waves are breaking everywhere and not in that spot, there'll be a reason. It's not always a rip current, but it could be. Isn't it true that if someone is struggling, there, there may be a problem that you can't see? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, drownings are, are are notorious not not just for individuals, but uh, we we exactly as my my situation doing the wrong thing uh, in Indonesia, we we go in there and and try and save people, and it might be there's a very good reason they're drowning that we haven't spotted. We have about thirty seconds left, but your last chapter deals with unusual events in water. Can we see if a tsunami is coming? Um, we, we, you know, tsunamis obviously, uh, you know, hugely and often tragic events. And we have sort of high tech things that, that, that sort of help us. The animals are believed to have uh, picked up a uh, fair warning here. The, the biggest sign that, that humans can spot is when the, the water actually recedes from the beach. And I mean, by that point, it, it's, it's imminent. But. And uh, my great thanks to you for being on our show today on today's Please Explain. Tristan Gooley's book is How to Read Water, Clues and Patterns from Puddles to the Sea. Of interest to people who sail and people who just work in the kitchen, it is published by The Experiment. Thanks, Lennon.